Hello, this is Rachel Lynn, and you are listening to Upstage Left. In this episode, I speak with playwright Monet Hurst Mendoza and actor Ugo Chuklu. Monet's play Torera was slated to premiere in the fall at Long Wharf. She is a member of the current class of Kilroy's and a staff writer for Law & Order SVU. Ugo has been called one of our best downtown actors by critic Helen Shaw. You may have seen him recently in Houseplant at New York Theatre Workshop Next Door, or What to Send Up When It Goes Down by Alicia Harris at Under the Radar, or in Mara Nelson Greenberg's Do You Feel Anger? Before the shutdown, he was in rehearsals for Lunch Bunch by Sarah Einspinier. I haven't really felt inspired to talk about theatre lately, partly because so many other things are greater priorities, partly because who knows when we'll be back in the theater again, and partly because I've just been feeling disenchanted with the industry, capital I, as a whole. But it was really nice to catch up with Ugo and Monet. Individually, they're amazing people, and together they're a bit of a theater power couple. And talking to them reminded me of what I miss most about theater right now, which is running into old friends and collaborators randomly at shows. I just really miss seeing people unexpectedly that I wasn't planning on seeing, you know? And so this conversation feels like an extended version of that, which was so wonderful and comforting. And I hope you think so too. Thank you so much for listening. Here's Hugo and Monet. But we can just keep talking. Um, Wait, is there a visual component to this? No, no, no. It's just right. perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how are you guys? You know? We are, well, I'm not going to say we, well, we can say we. We're doing well. We're doing well. I think we're doing well. Overall, yeah, sorry. Not to interrupt. Jack Frost. Jack Frost? Jack Frost. It? Okay, well then find the Michael Keaton movie. I think that one's also called Jack Frost. That must be really confusing in the video store because one is about a serial killer who is transported into the body of a snowman. And then Michael Keaton is a man who's like a family man. He's like, I'm a good man, I think. And then he's transferred into a <laughs> The body of a snowman. He's transferred into the body of a snowman, but he doesn't do, I think he does good. I think they're trying to re- <laughs> Oh my God, what a horrible thing. Reinvent what that is. Um, as she continues to do more research on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, we're fine. We're doing well, I think. <laughs> um, in the midst of everything, considering, I think it was a little hairy, but also like hairy because I think every like it was all, I think it was hairy for everybody. You know what I mean? I think there was like a good several weeks where people were just like, what the hell is going on? And then I think we kind of sort of, you know, malaise through it and, and and sort of found a rhythm and stuff. So, you know, the neighborhood that we're at is pretty good. It wasn't anything super crazy. So. In terms of what? Wearing masks? Well, this, is in terms of like, this is in terms of the pandemic. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, like, this what is this? Do we have to be more we, specific yeah. now? <laughs> so that's how we're... I don't know. What else? We did okay during quarantine. I think like we had one fight the first day of quarantine. The first day of quarantine, I think, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, well, it was, it was just yeah. like a fight. It was no, like it was like a, a fight. It was like a fight. And then I got fired from my job that, a few hours later. Oh, no. What job? Uh, my bartending job. Oh shit! Yeah, I know. It was it was weird though. It was like I was having a very long conversation with my brother. We were just like sort of shooting the shit about everything, mm. and I was saying how like my show just got canceled. So I was like, you know what? 
when one door closes, another one opens. I was like, this will actually give me a lot of time to like, you know, work behind the bar again, make money and like hustle. And as I'm talking to my brother, I get a call from my manager. And I was like, I have to call you back. I have to call you back. My manager's calling me. And then as she's talking to me, I'm like texting my brother. And I was like, I think I'm getting fired. This was pre we're closing non-essential businesses. So they were doing the thing of like, let's just sort of cut a good chunk of our employees right, to sort right. of, you know, I guess it's fur- furlough, furlong. Furlough, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. doing that. And then a week later, that's when the non-essential businesses closed. And then like, then they, I think they let go like everybody after that. Although what I thought was kind of like upsetting about the way that that went down, that whole thing, like he's worked at that bar for like 10 years and they were just like, sorry. Yeah, but- I always said to myself, like, the way my schedule is with acting and all that stuff, I was always so in and out of there, you know? So I was like, if something ever goes down where they have to, like, cut people, I was like, I think I'm first. And I mean, it still sucks, because I'm like, I guess being there for that long doesn't mean much, but, you know, it is what it is. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's just so much is going on, obviously. I mean, usually, so I have this podcast, it's called Upstage Left, and usually I interview, like, one person at a time, and we go really, like, far back into, like, where they're from and how they came to the theater and all this stuff. And with, you know, recent events, I was just like, I, I don't even know about the theater right now. Like, I don't even feel inspired to talk about theater necessarily, you know? And so I reached out to both of you because I was like, let's, let's talk about like positive things, you know? <laughs> I was like, I need some love. Like literally I need some love in my life, but I need to like look at and-, and I'm glad we inspire them. positive love. Energy. I know, right? Thank That's you. That's nice. There's a video- That's good to hear. There's, there's a video. I did this reunion um, thing for WP Theater and there's a video clip that someone took where I said, we don't, we don't need love right now. We need truth. It's funny that you say like, I came to you guys, but I'm like, you know, I was like, I don't know, you know? <laughs> We got our fair share of, you know, yeah, uh, we could talk about it. You know what we I mean? Need I think, all those things. Yeah. I think if you would have, I think if you would have emailed us two weeks ago, I, I like probably would have been like, I'm it's, not. It's been like three weeks. Like, I think it was really hard once all the protests started. That was like a really, it wasn't like a dark point in our relationship, but I think it was when we felt like there was like a shift, like a significant shift. Not necessarily in the relationship, but it, I think like for me personally, I don't know, maybe you feel differently, mm-hmm. but like what was happening in the outside world was really affecting what was happening inside the house. So yeah, I think like, yeah, if you had asked us to do this like three weeks ago, even, I think we, we were like not in a talking place. It's been a lot of sitting in the uncomfortable emotions. That's why like, I was like really surprised when we were talking about it. I was like, you know, we got through pandemic fine. Mm-hmm. Like we had one fight about being in the kitchen at the same time. <laughs> You know, and like, it's like, I need space. And, and and we figured out how to navigate like two months in pandemic. And then all of a sudden with everything else that happened, it's, it totally like changed the dynamics of the house, I think. Yeah. I think it's also like it connects to pandemic as well, just because there's nothing, not to say there's nothing to do, but like you have a lot more time on your hands. I think if all this is happening, I would have been doing a show right around this time. That would have been helpful in in any way, shape, or form. I think it was a combination of all the stuff was happening and then like, you know, you're 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 kind of quarantined as well. And but then also it's just like, I mean, even regardless of quarantine or not, I think everything that's been happening has been like really sort of 
intense in a way that I, I can't necessarily sort of articulate. Why is this different than all the other ones? But it felt that way. I can, I can only speak for myself. I know I was taking it very hard. I was not sitting with it very well. And I had to like sort of just take a step back and, and unplug and figure out what it is that I needed to do in terms of like self-care and and you know all that other stuff so now like as things have gone on like I'm still sort of very much paying attention and and doing all the things that I can do but it's also like let's figure out ways to sort of continue to maintain like a healthy balance whatever that means actually yeah I think balance is a good word because you're right. Like this does feel different than any other, you know, instance of police brutality that we've seen in the last few years. And I do, you're right. It is because of pandemic. Like everyone has to sit with the uncomfortableness because we we don't have, we don't have jobs to go to. Well, not everybody. I know that there are still people that are working and stuff, but you know what I mean? Like you have to sit with the uncomfortableness for the first time ever. And I also think that's like why these protests are going on because people are like, this is my job now. I go to, you know, this is where I can throw my energy into. This is human beings where we're always looking for something to do. Maybe that's also like New York, right? Like, because even though it's a protest, it gives us an opportunity to be social. You know, you're yeah. like feeling the energy of other people around you. And we've been cut off from other people to some extent, you know, for the last two months. So I don't know. It's interesting. Like I have a lot of friends that are like super into astrology and they were like telling me like 2020 is the year where like I was reading that it was going to be really like chaotic and now they're, you know. My brother too. My brother was, we were talking and he's kind of going through it with his job. And and that's the thing is like there's something like this is is permeating people's jobs and like livelihoods and stuff where it's like now like the, the work is sort of beginning in whatever people's home front is, you know what I mean? Or like, I guess like work front rather, you know, mm-hmm. where you're like looking at places where you're at and you're like, well, where is the sort of internal racism and, and institutionalized racism where I'm working at, you know what I mean? And how can we change and, and fix this? But he was talking about astrology as well. He was like, this is astrological. He forgot, he, he broke it down. He was like, and he kind of just said it like off the cuff. He was like, well, you know, this thing right now is going to be, there's going to be a new moon in this and, you know, <laughs> this is going to shift. So you know, it's, it's things are things are changing. I love that you're just saying like moon. You're just saying like planets. <laughs> I just say, you know, what I mean, that's what I hear when people say astrology. Yeah. Moon. There is a feeling of like things of places. Well, this is how I feel: is like everything is laid bare, kind of for the first time. Like we're seeing. I mean, I feel like if you're a person of color in this industry, you know, you ex- it's not new for like we've all experienced it, but we've all navigated it in our own ways. And for the first time, I've been like. I I know how to survive in this industry and therefore I am complicit in the system. I have to now, I can't just say I've been working against the machine. I also have to say I've been working for the machine, you know? Yes. I mean, we were having this conversation with some friends of ours yesterday, but it's also like, I struggle with that thought. Yes. And I struggle with that thought because it's also like, we have to, we've been forced to work in the machine and work as part of the machine. So you deserve success as much as the next person. So, you know, yes, I guess in some ways we are complicit, but it's also like, I don't know, I can't begrudge another person of color for like working in the system and finding a way that it's like successful for them. Do you know what I mean? When the system is already so stacked against it. I don't know if that's like, maybe that's not the right thing to say, but like, that's what it feels like. Like I would never begrudge Ugo for taking a job at a super white theater 
because he needs the money. And because if that's the only place that wants to give him a job, I don't know. It, it, maybe it's a case by case basis. Like, I guess they have to do something like super egregious. Well, it's, you know it's I mean? also just like, if this is the, if this is the rules and guidelines and this is how the structure works, you could see the structure like, well, you know, there's problems in X, Y, Z. This over here is not looking good. This over here is not looking good. And it's like, no, well, who cares? It's been this way for X amount of years. So you're like, you can still have a problem with the structure, but still work within the structure. You working within the structure doesn't necessarily mean that you think that you the agree structure with is, yeah, you don't mean that the structure, yeah. you don't think like, you could easily say, yeah, the structure is not sound. You know what I mean? The problems, I can see it, you know, but this is what we have now. And it's like, do you want it to change? I think that's the question. Like mm-hmm. if someone was like, if you could change the structure, would you? And you'd be like, yeah. I think if you're like, no, it, it looks fine to me, you know what I mean? Then like that's a different type of path or, 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 or a different type of situation to sort of deal with. But I think that it's, 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 I don't necessarily, I mean, if it's complicit, then I guess that's what it is. It's complicity. What's a non, what's a non version of that? Complicity? Complicity? Is that right? Complicity? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, so it's, so it's, you can, I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing, I guess. Yes. I think, I think the key thing that you're saying is like, if you want to change it, right. If you're working in it and like actively want to change it, like what are the things that you're doing as an individual within a larger system that you can affect? I've worked in some really like not great institutions before that were predominantly white and very microaggressiony. And it's like, I'm going to work in this because they're hiring me. And like, unfortunately that's the only way that I can get my work seen is with these opportunities, but I'm going to remember everything that happened to me. And the next person that tells me they're going there, I'm going to share my experience. I think like, that's kind of the reckoning that, you know, the white American theater, which is this new phrase that we're using. Um, I was just calling it the American theater. Um, I think white is (laughs) implicit, but, um, we all talk to each other. People of color, like talk to each other. And that's how we're able to like survive and navigate the spaces, you know? But I think we're in a really, um, interesting time it feels like there's like a seismic shift happening and like honestly i'm gonna like burn it all down and start over kind of situation what is the what is well you didn't watch game of thrones i didn't watch game of thrones but apparently she says like, it. Ja- 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 what's her name daenerys daenerys, daenerys. Yep. but it's 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 not even it's what she says in one season that's like she said something about like it's about the wheel and it's not like she's like i don't plan on like changing the wheel she's like i'm going to break the wheel it's, it feels like that. I feel like the wheel needs to be broken completely and like it needs to be remodeled and reshaped in a way. It's scary for a lot of people because it's such a big thing to take down, but, and also like taking that down could probably lead to a lot of, you know, situations where, you know, it's going to, it's going to get bad, I think for a little while, you know what I mean? And I don't know, necessarily know what that bad means, but I think that like, it's got to be bad in order for it to come back up Mm -hmm. and and for us to get something new. And that's a scary thing, but I think that's the only way that things could possibly change. It's got to like, it's got to be destroyed in order for it to be rebuilt. But I think there's like exciting opportunity in that as well. So like, I think as much as I'm sort of nervous for what's going to happen, in theater, um, that there is some excitement because the people mm. who want to change it have a real chance to like really change it. 
it'll be interesting to see like who's made these grand promises and like how they're going to fulfill them. That's what I'm waiting for. The people who have publicly yeah, like made statements about how they're going to change what they already do. It's like, now we're watching you. So like, mm. you know, it's a good time. I mean, nothing's really happening. You know what I mean? Ain't no theater happening for a little while. You know what I mean? Now's a good time to sort of, you know, do that work. And, and you know, people say it and it's, you know, sounds good. You know what I mean? And I'm all for it. I can only, sort of trust that when you know when it's time to ride you know what i mean you'll be able to sort of you'll be able to sort of do it i'm just i guess i'm just sort of waiting you know i'm just sort of waiting to see what it's going to look like when you know everything here is done and you know people are no longer being socially distant and all that stuff so watch we do this podcast and nobody hires us again (laughs) (laughs) might be the case case. we'll just make our own movies (laughs) <laughs> minute 24 ugo you said and i quote there is um, i do want to highlight that monet i feel like i mean i met you kind of when you were doing rising circle and, and you also and part of the reason why i've been in touch with you during quarantine is via the kilroys which mm-hmm. is another organization that you know is working for gender parity can you speak about either of those places is the rising sure. circle still alive Rising Circle, I believe, is on a hiatus now. When I was sort of transitioning into TV and, like, actually, I think it, I left, like, right around the time I got into EWG at the public. And because I was also a Van Leer, I had, like, a lot of different plates that I was trying to juggle. And so I stepped down from my producing capacity with them. And I think now, like, the, the company's sort of on hiatus. I do hope that it that it, that it it doesn't completely fade away because I think it, it, it was doing some really, really fantastic work. And, um, you know, I came into that company as a writer through the Ink Tank program. I didn't start that company, but I fell in love with that company's mission to uplift other artists of color um, by telling stories about communities of color. And I was with that company for, oh my God, like, I don't know. It started in 2011 and I don't do math really quickly. So. Yeah, you say you, 2011, and then you EWG, I got in 2017. You were there for six years, five years? My God, was that all it was? Because mm-hmm. it felt like 20 years. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> producing is really hard. <laughs> but I'm still, like, really good friends with all those people that I was, like, in the collective with. And I think also, you know, no one in that group really was, like, a producer-producer. Everyone else was, like, I have an interest in producing, but I'm predominantly a director. I'm predominantly a playwright. So I think because there were no, like, producer-producers in there, there wasn't really, like a, like, an artistic director. Mm-hmm. But yes, all that is to say, it's on hiatus right now, and I hope that it that it comes back because I do think that it was the o- one of the only places in New York where it was like all communities of color are are part of the conversation. It's not Latinx only or Black only or Asian only. You know, we do have those uh, uh, like race or culture specific theater companies in New York, but very rarely do I see like all of them kind of working together in a single space. Mm-hmm. I do think that's what was unique about Rising Circle. So I, I really hope it doesn't um, fade away. And actually maybe like now's the time, you know, maybe now's the time that it like reemerges. And then for the Kilroys, like I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say we're an organization. That's a, that's a word we don't like to use. It's more like we're a group of artists, activists that work together and we're working towards gender parity. Um, I think we're having some interesting conversations now about like in light of what's happening around us and how the theater is 
sort of imploding on itself. Like what is our next step and what do we want it to be? And, you know, we're the second generation of the Kilroys. Um, and we were all selected by the previous Kilroys, the original founding Kilroys, uh, and put together. Um, so I, you know, we're still like getting to know each other and like figuring out what kind of collective action we want to take together as a new group, you know, building on what the original Kilroys did when they founded, which was, you know, they wanted gender parity, uh, working towards gender parity. You produced a book. Thank you so much for sending me this, by the way. I love it. The Kilroys List. This is volume two. Producing a book is not an easy thing. What systems have you put in place to kind of make things happen without having a leader? Definitely. So I will say that the the, the second monologue, uh, Scenes and Monologue book was actually from the original. Uh, like they got the ball rolling on that. That that was the original Kilroy's, the founding Kilroy's. They started that. And then in the middle of the transition, we picked it up. And I personally was not, um, I was not, we have like little committees within, um, you know, our, our little group so that, you know, people can take the lead on something and, you know, uh, update the group as like we keep going. So I wasn't on the book committees. That was really Gina Young. Uh, you know, she was very instrumental in that. But that's a system that we do. So it's like there's 14 of us and there's different areas that we need to work on. So like the list is sort of an all hands on deck thing where everybody is involved in it. Um, but there might be like a list like subcommittee and like that's the people that like need and are like, okay, we need to get, you know, this, this done, this done, this done, this done. And then, you know, I find that breaking it up into smaller pieces is is how we're able to get that, get action steps going. Because as you can imagine, like 14 strong voices and there's no like designated, like quote unquote leader, it could be, uh, it could be hard to get things moving. So one of the things that we've decided on as a group is like to do these little subcommittees in order to get action steps, you know, pushed along. So we have like a book committee. Um, we do like an annual retreat. So we have a retreat committee. I'm on like the finance committee, you know, so wow. it's like, you know, yeah, I think everybody, we're really good at listening to each other and playing to each other's strengths. I think that that's the only way that, you know, when you're working with a group of artists to do something that things can get done, you know, we can't, I think it's, um, it's a fool's errand to think that you can do it all solo, mm. which I guess is like a larger a larger theme for uh, for everything that we're talking about, right? Like change doesn't just come from one person. You do need support. And yeah. um, it is a collective energy that makes change happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. See how I ramble until I get to a profound point. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ugo, I don't know if you remember this, but... Um, I think we've talked about this before and you're like, I don't remember saying that, but in like 2015 or 2014 at Souths, I think Monet was there too. I'm sure Monet was there. You were like, I was like, how's it going? And you're like, I don't know, man. I think I'm going to quit acting. You say that all the time. <laughs> like, I'm like, what year was that? I think this was like before like, while you were still maybe at the flea maybe, or you were doing, Ken I think you were doing King Sisyphus at the time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Oh man. Does that sound fun? But now you were, I mean, like I was just looking at your website and I was like, damn, Ugo has worked nonstop for the past <laughs> like three, four years, maybe like you've just been doing gig after gig. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I it's, it, that's only like, I don't know. Like I've been working nonstop actually since I want to say like, since I graduated college, which was like 2008, I think the longest 
we've what this pandemic has gone on since March. It's June. It's been three months. It's still not as long as like the longest space I had between gigs. I think in since 2008, I think the longest I've had between work was maybe like, I want to say maybe six months. Mm. You know what I mean? But like other than that, I've always kind of just been going. So yeah, yeah. I mean, things have been good. And I don't know. It might, maybe I guess now that I realize I said that, maybe I just say that all the time. I think maybe I'm You do of, say it all the time. Well, you know, I think, I think <laughs> where, where it comes from is maybe like they're still holding on to this idea of like, what is the journey for an actor and like markers when you're at this age, you should be here. When you're at that age, you should be here. When, you know, I think, I think, I think sometimes, and sometimes thinking about the fact that I've placed these markers on myself and I maybe haven't hit the marker that I created sort of makes me sort of go into this place of like, ah, I don't know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, like, I, I really do, like, I love theater, you know what I mean? And, I, and I, I miss it and I like acting a lot. I think it's, I think maybe what I'm trying to say is maybe refocusing what the larger picture is for me. And it's also just, I don't know, maybe it's just a flair for the dramatics. I think maybe something happened where I was in a show or I was working on something that was just like, what is this? What am I, what's going on? What am I doing? Having an existential crisis. You know, I have those a lot, so. But this is also the industry, right? It kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier. Like, being an actor is hard. Being a playwright is hard. Like, why do we do this? We don't, we have to give so much of our, we're expected by the theater, the American theater, to give so much of ourselves in exchange for so little. And for the off chance that, like, you might, quote, unquote, make it, you know, yeah, that's yeah. exhausting. Yeah. And we live in one of the most expensive cities in the world. Yeah. Like, and also, like you, you're, you know, you're getting older. I had a guy, I got into like a huge argument years ago. This is, I remember, it was 2014, and I don't really remember the details of this argument. I remember very, like, sort of, it's kind of like broad strokes. But I was talking to an older actor who's like, you know, I went to school with and, and he's a teacher now and, and all this stuff. And it was just like so like, no, you don't understand. This is what theater is. And da, 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 yada, yada. Long story short, I was very young at the time. You know what I mean? And I now that I'm older, I can look back at that argument and be like, Ugo, you were you were so wrong. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You were just and, and not like wrong in a bad sense, but I was like, you're just coming from a very young uh, I, I will say, you know, naive place. You know, I think as you get older, your your body shifts. You know what I mean? As you get older, your your mind shifts. Your uh, things that are important to you kind of move in different directions, and you know, it's like it's like one big giant puzzle piece. You know, where you're like, okay, maybe this needs to go up here now. This needs to go here, and maybe I should start giving more attention to this part of my life and less attention over here. So, and I think that's just what happens when you get older. And one of those things is, you know, I don't know, I get older and I'm like, do I want to continue to be in a, in a, in a situation where a level of, of, of not certainty, but like a level of, of foundation, a level of, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, honey. What are you trying to say? <laughs> it's, there's a word. I can't find it. Uh, security? Security. There it is. Security. That's the word I'm looking for. Like, you know, maybe like this, there's a certain level of security that, and I think comfort. personally I need and comfort, you know what I mean? But then it's like, okay, now what does that security 
look like? Right. Where, how can you make that security work with the fact that you still truly love to do, you know, this, this thing that you do in your life that you've been doing for, or for, you know, majority of your life. So it's just a matter of like reconfiguring your, your brain and, and, and where you're putting a lot of your energy towards and stuff. Do you say no a lot? I do now. I do say no a lot. I, I used to say yes a lot. I said yes for a good majority of my life for my, for, in terms of my career. And now I say no a lot, you know? I think I, I still do have trouble of saying no to, to bigger things. But, you know, I say, and I say no for a plethora of, of reasons, you know what I mean? Sometimes it's just like, if I'm not into, if, if I have a thing, if Sundays are my days where I give myself my own day and I chill out and I don't want to do anything, and there happens to be a project that lands on a Sunday, you know what I mean? Or a Sunday is an absolute mandatory day that you have to make, then, you know, I'm not going to do it. You know, that's just an example. But yeah, I do. I, I've, I've learned, I had to learn to say no a lot. I've had to learn mm-hmm. to say it. I've, like the first couple of times, it was almost like, like lifting a very heavy weight, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? When you're at the mm-hmm. gym, you know what I mean? You're like, I have to email this person and I have to tell them no. And then you sit and it, and, and it, you know, it keeps you up at night because you're like, maybe I said, maybe I said no to the wrong thing and stuff. And that's, that's, this is where it comes. You can't become, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You, you, you can't be a, you can't be a, a victim or, or you can't be, you can't let this career and this industry sort of take advantage of you in that sense. You know, you can't be at its every beck and call. Mm-hmm. You kind of sort of have to like take space for yourself, whatever that means. So yeah, taking space for yourself is like a really good thing. Like I recently started saying no to like playwriting projects and it was really hard for me because I was like, I just don't have enough hours in the day. And it's also like I had no, I wasn't doing anything for myself. I wasn't taking any time for myself. And sometimes it's like I get into a writer's group of, and it's with people I really admire and love, but it, that writer's group is a, is a 12 month commitment. And it's like, can I do 12 months of, of meeting with people on Sunday evenings at 7 p.m. You know what I mean? Like, I have a writer's group that meets on Sunday evenings at 7 p.m., but it's not that group. It's not that group. It, but that's just an example, right? And it's like, and at the end, I have to, like, I'm expected to, like, turn out a project or present something to, like, the larger audience, the larger audience, the larger, like, theater community is what I mean to say. And sometimes it's like, do I even have the space to, like, write a new play? Because it's not only is it, it takes a lot of emotional, a lot of emotional space to write a play. If you're just pushing for a deadline, I feel like sometimes it doesn't lead to the most authentic results when it comes to writing a play. Mm -hmm. And like recently I'm writing for television. That's different, right? Like in television, like I have a deadline and I work to meet it. And then I think when I'm writing a play, it's a different mentality. You know, it's a different way of working. It's Not to say that you can't have emotional space when you're writing in television, but for me, playwriting feels so like a religious, spiritual practice Mm -hmm. for myself. So it's like, I really want to, and when I'm crafting a character, crafting a story, unless there is some kind of a deadline, like superimposed on me, I really want to take my time and really enjoy the journey of writing Mm -hmm. and crafting character and crafting a story. And 
sometimes like, it's like now if you're doing four of those projects that require that, that's four times the emotional space, four times the brain space, four times the actual time, you know, some, some writers are really good at their time management and can work on multiple projects at a time. And I have tried to make myself that kind of writer. And I think with, with age and experience, I've realized like that's, I'm not that kind of writer and that is okay. Mm. You know, and I have to be okay with that. I'm a big retreat writer. Like I go on retreats and it's like, I have a week or two to get things out. And that seems to work for me. It's harder for me to write a play. I have six months to do this. And every Saturday I'm going to dedicate several hours. That seems to be not as uh, easy for me because it's like, I'll be working all week and then Saturday rolls around. And it's like the last thing I want to do is work on a play. But if I'm like at Space on Writer Farm or something like that, I'm going there. This is the dedicated time for me to write. And the only demands that are asked of me is to just be with my computer or with my pack of paper. And, and then for some reason it flows out much easier than that. So yeah, saying no is, is very difficult. It's very difficult, especially because I think this industry teaches you to say yes to everything, right? Like you have to say yes, because that's what builds experience. And you have to say yes, even though, you know, this job doesn't give you health insurance and you have to say yes, even though it doesn't pay you uh, an actual salary. It pays you like a $25 stipend for like a day's worth of work. Yeah. I think saying yes at first works, you know, in mm-hmm. any capacity. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I remember, you know, I was talking to some students at Brooklyn College years ago, and I think that's something I told them. I said, do, like, especially when you first graduate, mm-hmm. do it, do everything. And I say that to, to get experience, but also figure out what your palette is. Mm-hmm. You got to do several different things to figure out what it is that you want to do. You, you, you have to be like, okay, I, I did this type of work. I know that I never want to do this type of work again. Or it's like, okay, I worked in this sort of type of setting. This is something that I'm kind of into. And also, like, be, you know, be aware that that's going to change. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because we're we're human beings and our art is tied into, like, our daily life and who we are. You know, we can't, like, turn that off and then turn on, like, the art brain. They all kind of go hand in hand. So saying yes at an early age is, is, is I think good, you know, but also like saying if you're older and, and this is, if this is, if you have the capacity to say yes, and maybe things don't bother you or, or have, or, or Lord over you or have power over you like that. And saying yes to everything is your, is your, is your deal for whatever reason Then I'm like, you know, more power to you. I just knew that at some point for me, it was like, if I continue to say yes to everything, I'm going to start resenting everything. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to resent and I want to appreciate. So that's why I was like, okay, I have to like figure out what, what my checklist is, what it is like, will this project bring me joy? How will this project sort of help me in, in, in any way, shape or form before saying yes to it? Does it serve you? That's like my, the, that's the phrase of 2020. I feel like, like, does, does it, serve, it you? serve you, man? Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's, yeah, I feel like it, Oh, I have a lot of hard feelings about this. Like, com- not hard, conflicting feelings is what I should say. I have a lot of conflicting and complicated feelings about, I just feel like we leave, out, we as artists, especially in New York, because it's so fast paced, we often just forget to check in with ourselves. I've done that before. Mm-hmm. I don't eat when I'm in rehearsal. I just keep going, going, going. And like, I don't, 
I don't ever check in with myself. Maybe the reason that like I'm having trouble writing a script at like 2 a.m. is because I'm tired. And I know that. There's a certain point in the evening where my brain turns off and nothing is productive anymore. So it's not uncommon that like I'll be working until like 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. And then I tell Ugo like I'm going to bed. And then I wake up at like four and I start again, right? That's only when I'm writing. I don't wake up at four every single day. But like when I'm on a, when I'm on a deadline, it's not uncommon for me to set my alarm. I wake up at four and I'm writing from four to eight because I'm like super productive during that time. And also because I'm half asleep and it's like, I don't judge what's writing. I'm just like, get it out, get it out, get mm-hmm. it out. And then sometimes that like there's gems in that, you know, but uh, I'm obsessed yeah. Four to eight a.m. Uh, writing schedule. That's I also perfect. used to have a full time job, and that was the only time window of time I had. I had a nine to five when I worked for Samuel French. Um, so the only time I had was between like four and eight mm-hmm. to kind of get everything out, and then I needed to like take a shower, get to work, get on the train, and then by five time five o'clock rolled around, I'm like, well, I just expended all my energy for today at work, so I'm done. I'm not going to write when I get home. It's time to watch Roswell, New Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. With everything that's going on in the theater industry, do you feel like that's changed or changing or going to change what you do moving forward? Um, I think so. I think, I, I think so. I do. For me, I'll have like my magnifying glass, I think will be out a little bit more, mm. really. Cause I think the, some of the problems that with what theater is going through right now is, is speaking more to like the institution, speaking more to the people that run things, the people that m- might not necessarily be in the room with you. You know what I mean? Granted, there are situations where the room is, is the problem, but then it's also like the larger picture, you know, as a black man will I be able to see myself reflected in the audience? Will I see other Black people in the audience? Will I see other people of color in the audience? Like, what are you doing to extend that invitation in their show selection, in how do we approach, you know, something that I may say that may not sound right in my ears because I'm a Black man and... I have to sort of explain that to a white director or a white writer, you know? I think those are types of conversations have been being had, you know what I mean? People have been talking about it, but I think now they will be punched up a little bit more. I think now people may have more uh, uh, room to sort of speak on that and say those things. So I think that's helpful. I've always, I mean, my manager once brought it to my attention that she was like, the shows that you end up in happen to be like really good shows that sort of speak to something deeper. She was like, it's very rare that I see you in some sort of like, like something like this, this kind of just sort of dumb and, and light. And, and, and I say that to say, because I was sort of getting introspective and I was like, Ooh, what, like what kind of shows would I be doing now? And I was like, Ugo, the last three or four shows that you've done had some type of you know, message to it. I did a show about Bronx public defenders, you know what I mean? And what it is that public defenders go through. And albeit it was done in a crazy sort of funny, uh, for lack of a better word, experimental way, but it was still speaking to a lot of what public defenders go through and shining a light on something that needs to be talked about. 
And, you know, a show before that I did was about, you know, a response to police brutality and Black people, you know, dying in the streets and, and how we treat Black people in, in America. And it was like a, a play for Black people. So, like, I've always kind of have done work that was into that. You know, the other show I did was about toxic masculinity in, in the workspace, you know, and how mm-hmm. absurd that can be and how absurd we sort of treat that type of energy in our society. So like, I've always sort of leaned more towards work that happens to have something underlying that, that it's speaking about either, either outward or, or sort of like it's in the mix of everything else. So if anything, it'll just make me lean more towards that more. It'll encourage me to sort of maybe not like sort of let it come to me, but like seek it out. Mm. I think so. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I hope other people will continue to do that too. You know what I mean? And, and not just putting the onus on, on POCs and, you know, black people to sort of be the ones to make that first step. We want to know sometimes when we walk into a room, do we have to come in here with our sword and shield and our armor on, you know, ready to like go to war? Or are you someone who's on my side who will bring certain things to attention so that I don't have to bring certain things to attention? Are your eyes and your ears open to sort of like listening to what I have to say and, you know, presenting offerings that will help in sort of that creation and helping in moving towards a place where we are being more inclusive and less, I don't know, just less racist, you know what I mean? Like just really sort of, I think it's, it, it takes a village and, it's hard sometimes when you can be the only, you know, person of color in the room sort of fighting for all of that. It's, it's easier when you know you can look to someone and you're like, okay, this person's got my back or this person at least is willing to listen and is willing to sort of explore something different if, if I'm not feeling comfortable because of race or, 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 or anything else. Well said, honey. Oh, thank- for- What about you, Monet? Has it, do you think it'll change anything about your work in the theater? You know, I'm not really working in the theater right now. Um, that's a lot of, I mean, I have a production coming up with Long Wharf Theater, but because of the pandemic, it's been pushed to fall 2021 as of right now. Congratulations. So thank you, thank you. I hope that with this reset, more theaters will like take a look at my work. I think I'm in a really weird mm. spot because I'm a multiracial person or biracial, I should say, a biracial person. I actually think that those voices, like even though biracial and multiracial people are starting to become the majority as cultures mix, I don't ever see, you know, those stories kind of put on the stage. And like, I'm working on a play about what it means to be a biracial Latina working in the theater, which is part my own experience and part like, highly uh, stylized and imagined and you know I'd love to see that play get produced somewhere or developed but you know I feel like I've been in a development hell you know I get lots of readings I get lots of workshops but until you know a story of performing arts center like didn't gave me my very first production in New York prevailed but it only had you know 12 performances um and now long wharf is giving me a longer performance for torera in connecticut it's interesting because i've been working in the industry for like 15 years and like i only have these two productions right one that hasn't even happened yet (laughs) so 
And I don't know necessarily like why that is. I have a lot of people that come up to me, you know, who are artistic leaders and they're like, I love you. I love your work. But I think our, the way our industry is sort of set up right now, it's like, we're all pitted against each other. All the, the POC, you know, slots, the Mm -hmm. quote unquote slots, you know, everybody wants to support the work, but we only have one slot and whose voice is the most accessible for majority white audiences. Mm. Like we have the data that says that like the majority of the audiences are like, you know, white people over 60 that that's like the subscriber base for a lot of theaters. And I want to see more audiences that are young, more audiences that are diverse. I want to see ticket prices become more affordable because when you make things affordable, then people will come. I also want to see spaces make the effort to bring in non-traditional audiences. It's amazing to me how many um, you know high school groups I've talked to and they'd never seen a play before, you know, and they're like 19. It's also like sometimes the work that theater has, it's not really necessarily inviting to those to those folks, you know. I remember a couple years ago, I went to buy a Nintendo Switch at GameStop and I, yeah, I pre-ordered it and it was gonna come in at a time where I was out of town doing a show. So I told them, I was like, you know what, just here. I wrote down the address to the theater and I said, send it here when it's when it's ready. And the kid was like a little confused because he was just like, I don't even know. There's like something, he's like, what theater? Theater, you know, he's like, whatever. And we just started talking and he was like, so what do you, like, you're an actor? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I do theater. This kid looked like he may have been, like, in his, you know, 20s or whatever. And he was like, I've been living in New York my whole life. I've never seen a play. And I was like, why not? Like, not like, you know, like, why not? How come you haven't? Can I just hear, like, what, why? Like, I'm, I'm curious. And he was like, I just, I don't really see a lot of things that I'd be interested in watching. He was like, isn't it expensive? And I was like, yeah, it is. Why do that when you can, you know, probably go see a movie where you see yourself reflected in that? Theater sometimes isn't necessarily inviting to to a lot of folks. We, we want kids to come see it, but then you're going to have them sit through something that is like, what am I What am I watching? You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a fucking, you know, Michael Bay movie, you know what I mean? Where out, people out here swinging from, you know, the stage or whatever, but you can still do shows that are, you know, connecting to people that don't normally see it. I mean, I think about, you know, Lunch Bunch, which is a show about, you know, Bronx public defenders. We had public defenders coming to see that show. These are folks that saw a show that was about them, told other people about it, told the other coworkers about it. They would come in like drove. That was really great to sort of take a play about a certain types of folks and invite them to come see it and, and to see themselves sort of reflected on stage. And they got it. They understood it. They, they, understood, they understood that show, not better, but like there was jargon that we were using that only they were sort of laughing at and like losing their shit for. And I think that's like the beauty of, of, of theater, bring people in that don't normally go see it. You know, I think that's an easy way. I think if I was running a theater company, I would just be like, just follow the money. Like, just do a show about this and get people to come see it. Do a good show. Make sure it's good. Make sure it's like, you know, workshopped and goes through all the proper channels. But then it's like, okay, great. We're doing a show about high school kids or whatever. How can we get high school kids to come see it? And that's how, you know, maybe a kid who doesn't normally go see theater ends up seeing theater and maybe they're hooked. You got you to entice them somehow. Well, and I feel like, you know, we have salaried positions in theater staffs for audience development. And I'm like, where is the the audience? I've seen many situations where 
the playwright is who wrote the play if they wrote if they wrote about a specific community, they're asked to do the work of bringing the community in. Mm -hmm. And that to me is so egregious. You're going to ask the writer who gets paid like a stipend to do the work of somebody who's on salaried staff, whose job that is the entire time. Like, do you know how the Google machine works? Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I just hope that like people just start doing the work. That's really, that's really what I hope for out of all of this. I need everybody to just stop what they're doing right now and let's just hit reset and just like really think things yeah. through. The time has come where it's like, it's not just on black indigenous people of color anymore to do the work for white theaters. And it's going to be hard as it should. Let it be hard. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people just need to just sort of say that. And you'll know? make mistakes and like, that's okay. Yeah. People are going to make mistakes. You have to yeah. in order to move forward. You know, it's, it's okay. Like it's, you're in this theater, you're in audience development, whatever, and you're going to have to get out there and it's going to be very hard. And you can maybe just say that, like, how come you haven't done it yet? Or how come you haven't, you know, gotten these people to come see the show? Cause it's hard and I'm doing my best, but like, we have to sort of call it for what it is before we can, you know, move forward. And then maybe after that, you can, you can sort of work through it better. You get help or whatever. It's, you know, I don't, I don't think any of this stuff is easy, but it's about doing the work. And I think for me as a writer, one of the things I like really try to do, and I need to get better at this myself, but it's like my words have power. So just be really cognizant of that. If I'm writing a story about a black indigenous or a person of color, or even somebody from the LGBTQIA plus community, try to approach it with respect, especially if it's a culture that's different from my own. Try to approach it with respect and make sure that it's researched. You know, I think if I'm, you know, if I'm interested in writing a, a, a play about an indigenous community, I need to speak to members of that community. It's not just researching things online or reading books. It's like actually reaching out to the community and, and, and getting stories and getting information, you know? Yeah, if you're not necessarily from that community, that is your responsibility. That is how you can be responsible. That is how you can honor and do justice. It's not easy, but that is the work and that that's how I can affect change. That's how I hope to try and do it and try to do it, you know, as a writer. And I'm going to keep doing that. Like, and hopefully every single time I do it, it gets better and better and better. Um, and hopefully, you know, other people will do the same. I could talk to you guys for hours, (laughs) obviously. Um, I feel like we've talked about so many things. So I'm just going to say thank you guys. Yeah, thank Thank you. you. Thank you for asking us. This is like, we've never done things as a couple before. I know. Well, we did. What did we? No, you're right. This is our first thing. This is our first couple uh, podcast, couple interview, I guess. Couple interview. The first of many. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please consider following us on Instagram at Upstage Left Podcast or reach out with any feedback, questions, recommendations. I love hearing from you all. That's all for now. Have a great day.